The Old Testament lesson for the Feast of the Holy Trinity is from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It's kind of a strange detail that Isaiah gives to us from his experience in the throne room of God. This is what he said. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Of all the things he could have described, he tells us about the train of the Lord's robe. Picture the train of a wedding gown flowing back behind the bride. The train of the Lord's robe is what he describes to us. And what he tells us is that the train of the Lord's robe fills the temple. It's kind of a peculiar detail. Of course, the train of a king's robe is not just a detail. The longer the train of his robe, the more glory he has. Which makes sense because, of course, it's not a very practical piece of cloth, is it? That bit of garment flowing behind a robe doesn't keep you warm, it doesn't cover you up, it's just there to show your majesty, your power, your wealth, your glory. How glorious is the Lord of hosts? The train of his robe fills the temple. Now I think that Isaiah tells us about this detail because the whole experience for him is so utterly overwhelming that he can't possibly capture it. He can't tell us what the Lord looks like, his dazzling appearance. He can't even tell us what the throne looks like upon which the Lord sits, what it's made of or what it's decorated with. All he can do is to tell us about this one detail, the train of his robe fills the temple. If that's how magnificent his robe is, and even this small part of his robe, how much more magnificent and overwhelming would that whole experience have been? It wasn't overwhelming just for Isaiah. There were some angels there as well. They're called seraphim, which is a Hebrew word. It just comes straight into the English, transliterated. Those are what the, that's what the word sounds like in Hebrew, seraphim. And it means burning ones. So these are angels of fire of some sort. And there they are, about the throne of God. And they have six wings. With two of their wings, they hover. And with two of their wings, they cover their face. And with two, they cover their feet. They're covering themselves in modesty. They're hiding themselves in modesty, not in shame, like Adam and Eve hid themselves in the Garden of Eden. These are perfect creatures, holy, even as God our Father is holy. 
And yet, the glory of God is so magnificent in comparison with their created glory that they must cover themselves in modesty. They hide themselves before the face of God. And they sang to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As much as the train of the Lord's robe fills the temple, so much more does the glory of the Lord fill the whole earth. Think about that. There's not a corner of creation, not a place remote in this world, or even in the universe, or even in the recesses of your heart. There is not a place so remote and distant that the glory of the Lord does not fill it. This is what Paul said in Romans. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything that you see, everything that you possess, the world that you know, it all comes from God and is full of his glory. From the house that you live in, to the clothes that you wear, to the food that you eat, to the air that you breathe, to the distant galaxies out in space, it all belongs to God and it is full of his glory. It is an incredible and marvelous thing. And you recognize it because you have the Holy Spirit whom God has poured out on you generously. But we live in a world that does not recognize the glory of God. You know that all too well, I imagine. You live in a world that does not recognize the glory of God. One of the most basic ways that the world does not recognize God's glory is in denying his existence altogether. This is especially true in recent history. The last several hundred years, people have gotten very good at inventing ways for the universe to come into existence, any kind of fanciful way that they'd like, except for a creator God by whom all things are made. That's one of the ways that people don't recognize the glory of God. They just deny his existence. They deny that he's here at all. Some people acknowledge that God is here God created the universe, everything belongs to him. But they deny his existence in their lives. So they come to church on Sunday morning, and for one hour out of the week, God is real and present and the Lord of all. And yet, for the other 167 hours out of the week, it makes no difference to them that God is there. Those who deny that God exists outright, they're called atheists. There's an interesting and helpful term for folks who live as though God does not exist. They're practical atheists. Although they might confess with their mouths that God exists, they don't live as though he did. They don't live as though there is God sitting in his throne room ruling over the universe. They don't live as though everything belonged to God. They hide from God. The world that we live in is very fond of hiding from God. Why? Why is it that people deny God's existence either with their words or with their lives? You can see the reason why as we go on in our Old Testament lesson. Look at what happens next in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is standing there in the throne room of God, and what is happening? The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of the angel. This isn't even the voice of God. It's the voice of the angel. makes the foundations shake, and the room is filled with smoke. It's terrifying. Being in the presence of God is a terrible and awesome thing. Isaiah goes on. Woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's not all the commotion around him. It's not this sense that the building is going to crumble on top of him. That's not what makes him afraid. What makes Isaiah afraid is his own sin. 
He knows that it's not safe for a sinner to stand in the presence of God. It is not safe. And that is why the world hides from God. David wrote a psalm that is very helpful. It tells us kind of the story that's going on here in Isaiah. It begins by, like this, Psalm 24. This is what David says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Everything comes from God. God has created everything. Everything belongs to him. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine, says the Lord. That's what it says in Psalm 50. And then David asks this question, this all-important question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who is it that can stand in the presence of God? Even the angels, the burning angels, the seraphim, are there in modesty, hiding themselves from God's face. Who of us can stand in his presence? This is the answer that David gives. He says this, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. What does it take to stand in God's presence? What does it take to look at God in his throne room with a train of his robe filling the temple? What does it take? It takes clean hands and a pure heart. It takes holiness and righteousness and perfection. You shall be holy, says the Lord, for I am holy. That is why the world hides. Even as Adam and Eve hid in the Garden of Eden, you remember how it goes. They sinned, and when God came walking in the cool of the day, they hid from him. They did not want to stand in his presence because they knew what it meant for them. They knew that it is not safe for sinners to stand in God's presence. That's how most of the world lives, hiding from God either by denying that he exists altogether. It's like a toddler who covers up his face and says, I can't see you, and so you must not be there. That's how the world lives. God does not exist, and so I have no answer to give to him, either by their words or practically in their lives. People live as if God did not exist. But there is another way of hiding that is, in fact, more common in the church than outside of it. It is hiding by self-righteousness. So you stand in the throne room of God, you know that God exists, and yet you present yourself with your own righteousness. It's like that story, that parable that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector. They're standing in the temple together, and the tax collector is off in the corner, humble with his head bowed down, saying that he is, uh, he is unworthy and he's praying for God's mercy. But the Pharisee, he stands up proud in the temple, and he prays this prayer. He says, I thank you, God, but I am not like other men, like that sinner over there. That is another way that people hide themselves from God. They hide themselves behind their own self-righteousness, which is, of course, a feeble thing to hide behind. It's as silly to do that as it was for Adam and Eve to hide from God in the Garden of Eden. Your self-righteousness, your own good works, your own holiness is nothing. It cannot save you from God's wrath over sin, and it is a terrible way to try to stand in God's presence. It will not avail. Isaiah shows us, however, how to stand in God's presence. And it's surprising. What does he do? Woe is me, for I am lost. He doesn't make any claims for himself. He doesn't deny that God exists. He doesn't pretend that he's not there. He acknowledges his sin. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He knows that he has not clean hands 
and a pure heart, but he is full of uncleanness and impurity. He shows us how to stand in the presence of God, which, of course, on its face looks like the most foolish thing to do because, of course, it is not safe for sinners to stand in the presence of God. But to hide yourself from God is to miss out on his mercy. This is the most important part of the story. See what happens next. Isaiah is standing there undone because he is seeing the king, the Lord of hosts. And an angel, one of those seraphim, flies to him having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. As if it wasn't enough to be in this building that seems like it's about to crumble. As if it wasn't enough to see the Almighty God face to face. Now there's this burning angel coming to you with a burning coal and it was bound to be painful. But Isaiah doesn't remark about the pain. He doesn't tell us if it hurt or not. He tells us what the angel said. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. As much as the train of the Lord's robe filled the temple and so much more does his glory fill the whole world, it is essential for us Christians to know that the glory of God is chiefly seen in the forgiveness of sins. It is God's greatest glory to forgive your sins. God was at his most glorious his most exalted, when Christ was lifted up on the cross, his blood pouring out to cover all your sins, to take away your guilt, to atone for your wickedness. That is why we have the creeds, and that's why on this Sunday we confess the Athanasian Creed. We have the creeds in the church to preserve for us the glory of God. Remember, we live in a world that wants to hide from God, that does not want to see his glory, and our own flesh resists it. And so we have the creeds to confess continually what it is that is the glory of God. It is that Christ took on human flesh to take away our sins. That is the glory of God, and that is why these creeds, even as antiquated as they may sound, as kind of out of touch as they might sound, they are precious to us because they preserve for us the glory of God. They show us, clear as day, what God's glory is. Forgiving your sins, covering all your iniquity, and bringing you home to be with him. It saves us. The creeds, they save us from the terror of standing in God's presence and make it so that we can look, stand in his presence, confident in his goodness, confident in his mercy, so that we do not hide from him, but receive forgiveness. Do not hide from God, but live in his glory. Live as though you were standing in the throne room of God. Live as though he were there with his train, the train of his robe filling the temple. Live as though you could hear those angels singing, holy, holy, holy. Live every day as though you could hear those words, your sins are forgiven, your guilt atoned for. Live in that way. And you can live in that way because you have been born again. You have been born from above. Not by flesh, but according to the Spirit of God who has called you by the gospel, enlightened you with his gifts, sanctified and keeps you in the true faith. Hold fast to God in his mercy. Look to him in his glory. Keep your eyes fixed on the cross of Jesus, where God is seen most glorious for you. For your sin is atoned for, and your guilt is taken away. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, now and forevermore. Amen.